You're only human, yes? Well, we find out today how our limits reflect God's design and why that's great news for us. Uh, joining me now is on the God's Story podcast is our very special guest, Kelly Capick, a professor of theological studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where he's taught for 20 years. He's an award-winning author of more than 15 books, and his latest book from uh, Brazos Press is You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, as indeed it is, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. And Kelly joins me now from the States. Kelly, hi. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Now, in an age where we're increasingly obsessed with transhumanism and moving mm. beyond humanity, why is it important to reflect on our human limitations? Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that is a great question. I Surprisingly, I think it's actually very difficult to ac accept the fact that we're limited. And from a Christian perspective, you know, we use this fancy language of finitude, but it's just fancy term for being a creature. And being a creature is about being in one space at one time, having limited knowledge, limited energy. And so trying to think through what that means and that that reality isn't necessarily a bad thing. It was part of the good way God made us. Yeah, in what ways are we not in control in the modern world? <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's funny that we would even ask that, isn't it? Because in the modern world, we we are tempted to imagine we're in control in all kinds of ways, and there might just be a few we're not. When the reality is, I'm not sure in any way we're in control. <laughs> you know, um, whether it's the composition of our bodies, our you know, none of us picked our parents, none of us can control the environment by ourselves, none of us can. I mean, the list is endless, right? And uh, so, yeah, I'm not even sure where to go with that because there's just the myth of control is very powerful. I mean, I put it this way, maybe in a practical way. I have, as my children are becoming adult children, and I spend a lot of time talking to people whose adult children are older than mine, they often tell me how much more difficult it has been to have adult children. And as we talk about it, I really think it relates to this. When they're little, we at least have the myth that we're in control of them, even though we never exactly were. But now it becomes very clear, right? <laughs> and And as Christians, like, oh, you mean prayer really matters? That's kind of all we got. You know, why is it important for us, and how can we face our human limitations? Yeah, I think part of it is learning to um, be more honest about about the world in which we're in. It's just kind of to build off of what I was saying. I think ch children are a great test case, um, particularly in America. But I, it'd be I'd be curious to talk to you about it in New Zealand, but. We tell children, you're the best at this. You're the best, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to be honest with kids and to recognize, you know, none of us are the best, the brightest, the strongest, you know, the most able. And so when that's the narrative we get built up, you know, we're, we're raised with, then by the time we're becoming young adults, it often can unravel us because we just start to discover it's just not true. So um, some of it is learning to recognize how God made us. We, I, it's not about that we can't improve. It's not that we can't try hard, but trying to discover both our gifts and our limits and how to push into that. Yes, yeah, so I think that's a true narrative for New Zealand children as well these days, mm. that they, they really are taught that. And I think it's it's a, it's a there's been a massive shift from the older way of teaching children to, to the modern view. And I think it's creating anxious children all over the place. It's a ton of, I mean, we... Yeah. We even the way we over schedule children so they mm. go from one thing to another uh, sports oh, activity sure. to to the flute to the, whatever and we feel like we're failing them 
if they're not accumulating all of these things and that's part of the the problem of you can't be good at everything and that doesn't make you a failure it doesn't make you bad um so trying to lean into that's important to explore now you write in your book uh, that the Russian pressure of modern life is a form of its innate violence. Now I, th- mm. I was fascinated by that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there I'm drawing from um, a Roman Catholic priest who, who, in his poetry, has this line that stress is basically an inappropriate relationship to time, and and he's exploring some of that and. I would change his wording a little bit and I would talk about anxiety. I think stress actually can be a good thing. When you see a bear and it's near you, stress can elevate your, your speed, you, you, you rush, you do certain things. Um, stress can help us during uh, intense times, but you can't live like that. But there's a, there's a difference with anxiety without getting into all the details of the psychological differences. But actually there's, there's psychological literature on the way it affects us, affects our understanding of time. Without getting into all of that right here, it, what happens is we, we start to go inward and time slows down and we start to think that we are just failures. And this is where anxiety can paralyze us. Um, it can overwhelm us. And so part of what I'm interested in exploring is there's this talk about I, I explore the idea in the history of clocks, which we don't think of as a big deal. But the push of time upon us and the idea that we even on our on our wrist or in our pockets carry time. And that it is this constantly moving thing pushes us forward. And even in the last, it's only, you know, Ben Franklin, this idea that time is money, how I'm very interested in how that stuff has affected us. And the other thing I would add to this is the, the violence part is with, with even things like electricity. I'm not, I'm not against all of these things. They're, they're wonderful gifts. But right now, we've changed our view of time from what, what has historically been considered contextual time what they call contextual time to non-contextual time. What that means is our bodies have certain rhythms. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. We eat meals, we get sleepy. But now it can be 1130 at night and we turn on the lights. We open our computer and an hour is an hour. Rather than, no, actually an hour isn't an hour. An hour, nine in the morning is different than 11 p.m. You know, and so even... Just exploring some of those things is worth understanding how they affect our bodies, how God created us. It doesn't mean that you're bad if you have a night shift, but we need to think about that. Yeah, you talk about a lot about time in the book. I was fascinated. That, that in what ways have clocks, you mentioned clocks, in what ways mm. have clocks been important in the Western tradition? For millennia, there has been ways of measuring time, you know, sandals, different things like that. But part of what happens is you do start to have the clock showing up in terms of monasteries. But what's fascinating is Weber and some others looked back and said, oh, this is kind of proto-capitalist, very rigid things going on. But actually, when you look at the monastic tradition, the clocks ringing, time was understood in terms of sound, and those ringings were to shape you liturgically. They were to help you know when to pray and that kind of thing. That eventually gives way to, and those clocks normally just had hours rather than minutes and certainly not seconds left. So now when you eventually move all the way to clocks with hours, seconds, minutes, and they're with us, pushing us, we have just no idea how much that has affected us. And so that starts to shape us more than relationships. I guess the short way I would say it is 
clocks can push us towards valuing efficiency more than relationships. And I see that not just in the world, but in churches. We, we think efficiency is the highest value. And I'm, I just raise a lot of questions about that in the book. You do. Is God efficient? Yeah, it depends what you mean, right? <laughs> I guess the easiest way to say this is, if I believe that God could have created the whole world in a half a second, millisecond, whatever, as fast as you want to say, the fact that he doesn't, whether you think it takes him 17 billion years or seven you know, literal sunrises and sunsets doesn't matter to, the, to this point, the fact that God could have made it instantaneously and doesn't shows that God likes to take his time. He likes process. He likes development. And I think that's very interesting. And he, even in our lives as Christians, he is comfortable beginning a good work in us and carrying it on to completion. It's very hard. We're like, well, why, why doesn't he just instantly change us? He seems to be comfortable as a creator and recreator with process. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. I think you're right. Yeah. Mm. So how, how can we as Christians then live in harmony with time? Uh, to live in harmony with time, the short answer I would give is three things. One is learning to listen to your community. Others pro- often help us know that we're doing too much, um, that we're, we're unraveling. I think this, the second is listening to our bodies. Our bodies actually, you know, as, as uh, Von Basel's uh, book, The Body Keeps the Score, is very important here. Our, our bodies are telling us stuff if we will listen. Uh, there was just a recent book by a news anchor who's in her 30s and was very successful and her body and emotionally just falling apart. You can only do so much. But then as a Christian, the third thing I would really say that's important, that is, I think the biblical answer is cultivating the fear of the Lord. That sounds very like, what does the fear of the Lord have to do with time? But biblically, what the fear of the Lord fundamentally means is a growing awareness that God is near, that he is the creator and sustainer. And it lifts our gaze uh, higher than our, you know, than our belly button. It helps us to, to recognize God is with us. And that, I think, gives a, a, a healthy pace to life, to recognizing God is with us. How was our quest to be infinite part of the original temptation back in the garden? Gerhard von Rod is an Old Testament scholar, and he has this great exposition where he talks about the temptation in many ways. Is this, is this temptation to be infinite, to reject the, the, the few limits God puts on creatures. And I do think that's a way of making sense of the fall, that the fall is fundamentally saying, I don't want to be a creature. I don't think any limits should be put on me. And any that are must be bad. So uh, let me give you just one quick illustration to maybe make sense of that, because people really struggle with the fall. And what, why would God restrict anything? And I think, you know, when as parents, when we have little kids, and there's a light socket, or there's an electrical socket, we, we, we say, don't stick your finger in there, right? It's not actually because electricity is bad. And it's not that we're bad. But we are not created to be able to handle the electricity. Right? And I think that's part of what's going on with God. It's knowledge is not bad. Tree of life's not bad. We're not bad. But we weren't created to handle that. And it was like sticking our fingers in a light socket. There are consequences and it hurts. How do we, and, and we do, we do misunderstand sin, don't we? That's part of your discussion. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of what drives the, the whole thesis of the book is, you know, I'm from the reform tradition and 
if people know what that is, one of the things we're known for is taking sin very seriously, which I think is real and biblical and we need to take it seriously, often more seriously than we do. Having said that, I've also become convinced, and this is, this is driving the book, that we often confuse finitude or our limits with sin. So we feel guilty about things that we shouldn't feel guilty about. They're just part of being a creature, forgetting certain things, not being able to be everywhere, not being able to you know, do everything. That's not necessarily sin. It could just be you're a creature. And so sometimes we need to stop asking God to forgive us for not being able to do all these things and ask for forgiveness that we ever imagined we could or should do them all. Are we still sometimes the heirs of Marcion and the Gnostics in the modern church? We view matter as evil. Yeah. Yeah. So the Marcionites, um, going back to Marcion, this basic idea that our bodies in the physical world are fairly problematic and we really want to be spiritual. And so what really matters is to get beyond our bodies, to leave our bodies behind and to become really spiritual. And Orthodox Christianity has actually consistently rejected that, uh, even though it's a it's always been a temptation through history. And the easiest way to understand why that's so problematic is God in his son by the spirit takes on real flesh. He's not pretending to become incarnate, not pretending to be truly human, but the son becomes man, a particular man, is man with flesh and blood who needs to sleep, who needs to relieve himself, who goes through puberty. And that is God's great yes to his creation. It shows how committed he is to restoring and healing what has been broken because the creator loves what he made. And so he's going to heal it, but he's going to heal it from the inside rather than from the outside. How should we relate to ourselves in a culture obsessed, say, with body image? We talked a bit about body image, mm. but how, how should we relate to ourselves today with this so much obsession with body image in the media and movies and everywhere? Yeah, as you, as you know, in the book, kind of exploring this idea, uh, you know, it's very common for people to talk about body image challenges for women. Part of what I'm, I was interested in is also exploring how that's affecting men these days. It's not, it's not just for one sex, it's for, for all of us and everybody's growing in their insecurities. And I think it's part of where Christian theology and the Christian church, when it's functioning well, has a different story Th that these bodies God has given to us. Yes, we're to care for them, but part of the glory is, is difference. And, and we shouldn't confuse sameness with unity or sameness with perfection. Now, God delights with what he made, and he made it with diversity, height, width, you know, um, where people are throughout the world, languages, all of that kind of stuff. And so exploring what that looks like and body image is an example into exploring what that looks like and, and just starting to, in the book, trying to explore why this is such an issue for us. Well, let's uh, be practical. If there's someone listening who is struggling with issues of body image, what's some of your advice to them? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. Some of it is, it is again about community. And I think the church, uh, part, of, part of what's so sad about all the scandals of abuse right now, sexual abuse and otherwise, is it has made this all the more difficult. So nothing I'm about to say is for us to not have strong child protection policies or not, you know, we need to be wise about these things. Having said all that, physical touch actually really matters. And it is a way to get reconnected with our bodies. 
it is a way to have healthier views of these kind of things. And one of the things I deal with as a college professor is as college students, they're all over guys and girls, guys and guys, everyone hugging, they lay over, you know, wrestling on the grass. And then a year or two out of graduation, many will say just how painful it's been because they will find out they've gone days, sometimes weeks or longer without any healthy touch. And it unnerves them because they never even knew they needed it because they were getting it. Well, I think that that stuff affects body image. It affects, you know, and there's, there's a reason why people coming from dysfunctional families um, or abusive, it raises the, the concerns about these issues because we don't have that kind of foundation. Yeah. In what ways does our culture today interfere with our attempts even to know who we are? Yeah, these are all great questions. You're you're, you're going Sorry, rapid it's fire. It's too early in the morning to be trying these profound. <laughs> yeah, and and all of them deserve a chapter, not not a two second thing. I think we live in, especially in the Western culture right now, we live in this tension because everyone says, "Be who you are," and then they say, "You want to know who you are? Look inside of yourself." And the reality is, when we look inside, who knows what we find? And it constantly is changing. And so that's part of what I'm interested in exploring, because. Actually, there's all kinds of sociological evidence and otherwise, and uh, that to know who we are, we're actually looking on the outside. And even historically, in, in much of the non-Western world to this day, if you ask who someone is, they'll tell you about their family, their tribe, their land, you know, all of those kind of their work, all of those kind of things, those relations are what give identity. And now we're supposed to look inside. And we live in these cultural pressures who say, look inside, don't let anyone tell you who you are. And the very people who are telling us that are bombarding us with images about who we should be, even though they're saying they're not. <laughs> so yeah. um, the, the crisis is huge. The anxiety is intense, especially among young people. Yes, I was going to say, are young people even free today to explore yeah. who they are without someone actually trying to shape them? Yeah. Oh, they're definitely being pushed often without realizing it. But but part of what I found is it, it's it's more intense among young people. But it's I, I'll talk to 50 year olds and 60 year olds who are dealing with this now in a way that even they didn't deal with it 20 years ago. It's affecting all of us for sure. OK, well, how do we then in the West, bearing all this in mind, what do we need to do to change our lives and schedules to reflect our limitations mm. how do we get real with time i suppose yeah that's a good question i as you know part of what i'm arguing is that fundamentally this is a theological problem right rather than a time management one and what i mean by that is only when we start to have a healthier view of who god is or or put it this way what does god expect from you i know when i get into my office on monday and i create my to-do list for monday and the rest of the week what I write down for Monday and my to-do list actually probably will take out an entire week. So what happens is at the end of Monday, I'm surprised that I just feel so, so much like a failure because of how much I didn't get done because I have such unrealistic expectations. Well, I think if you actually start to explore that, often driving it is some unhealthy theology. Like I, I think God expects me to do all of this. And so to, to get a healthier view of time and a relationship to time, I think we have to start by exploring the kindness of God, 
the, the fact that he's the creator and he's the one who gave us limits. He's the one who, who made my brain only this big and not bigger, who, who, who says that sleep is good. I think sleep is a spiritual discipline. Yes, so, you write that in the yeah. book. That was my very yeah. next question. Yeah. In what way is a sleep a spiritual discipline? Yeah. It, well, because there are pressures right now, even in the church, that it's, it's almost as if sleeping shows moral weakness. <laughs> right? You are morally superior the, the, the less you sleep. And that is so problematic. No, no, no. And, and I can't get into it all here, but no, part of the beauty that God never sleeps is that is why you and I can, right? If you're on the front lines in a war, you can't sleep because you're constantly worried about getting shot. And only when you finally have someone to, to watch your back, can you sleep a little? Well, the whole point is we can sleep because God never does. And, and it takes faith to sleep. It takes faith to go, oh, God, you're holding the world and everything I care about, even when I can't. And I think sleep and Sabbath is a, is a spiritual discipline because it, it works into the regular patterns of our lives. The reminder, we are not God. And that's a good thing. We would all say that but it's hard for us to believe it. And one of the questions, one of the ways to find out if you think you're God or not is not to ask, do you think you're God is how do you think about sleep? How do you think of taking a day off? That's very revealing often. Yes. And all this is tied up with humility, isn't it? And you mm. write about humility in the book too. What, what's the importance of humility in all this in the Christian life? Mm. Yeah, that was really fun um, to explore in more depth because I'd be curious about your experience on this as well. My understanding, the way I've seen it, the, the way I've often experienced it and seen it taught, Christians often think of humility as you should be humble because you're a sinner. Well, I, I mean, I do think we're sinners, and I think that should feed into humility. But I think that's an example of trying to build a house on something it was never meant to be built on. I actually argue that the reason we should be humble is just because we're creatures. And even if there were never any sin or fall, we're, we're humble because humble just means this. I am, I am recognizing my dependence on God. I'm recognizing my dependence on my neighbors. I'm recognizing my dependence on the earth or the land. That is fundamental to humility. Humility is not belittling yourself. It's not tearing yourself out down. It's not even constantly focusing on your sin. It's entering into a healthy, right relationship to God, neighbor, and the earth. So I actually think humility is quite joyful and hopeful when rightly understood. Mm. Well, there's a lots, lots more we could talk about, uh, but I think <laughs> that's about 30 minutes. <laughs> you, you, this is one of the most rapid fire interviews I've ever done. This is, is incredible. You're, this is great. Like boom, boom, boom. You're, I love Do you it. want to go a bit longer? I've got a few more. I'm following your lead. I'm just saying uh, this is an incredible style. This is great. You must have, Serious listeners who are able to keep up. It's impressive. I don't, I, it's funny. I don't think of myself as a rapid fire interviewer at all. I, I think of myself as a slow turtle interviewer. I just like to let people talk. You know, you ask a question. That's well, great. Let, let's, let's ask you one more to close. Okay. And then, sure. then I'll let you go and have a rest. Uh, <laughs> why should we praise God for our limits? Yeah, I think we should praise God for our limits because that's how he made us. And so rather than belittling and bemoaning the reality that we're creatures, we have to, the only way you can praise your creator is by starting out by recognizing you're a creature. 
So, um, and that means all of us have limits and all of us have gifts. I know it can sound cheesy, you know, that we all have gifts, but I actually really do believe that God gives gifts to everybody. It's not, not just those with high IQs, not just those with finance, everybody. And, and so that means we can delight and celebrate in other people and their gifts. And in doing that, we're celebrating our creator because we don't think we have to do everything or be the best at everything. We can enjoy other people and praise God for them. And we can, we can praise God that when we put our heads on the pillow, he gave us the strength for the day. We can ask for forgiveness where we fell short, but also recognize this day only had so many hours and so much time. And it's okay to have rhythms of work and rest and leisure and laughter. So that's some of the ways. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kelly Kapik, the uh, author of this new book from uh, Brazos Press, a division of Baker Publishing Group mm. in the States, www.bakerpublishing.com. Uh, and the new book is called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. And you'll find it a fascinating read. And um, if you're listening, that's very kind. rush out Thank and buy you. a copy because I have one and I'm going to reread it. And because it's one of those books mm. that you want to... Um, meditate on really and just take a chunk mm. at a time and go through it. There's so much deep stuff to be considering. So Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Oh, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Oh, that's a pleasure. Anytime, sir. Anytime. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.